It's August 8th, 1963, England. Under a cloudy night sky, stillness reigns over in the rural southern county of Bedfordshire. Except for the dim glow cast by far-off villages, the undulating countryside is cloaked in darkness. It's nearly 3 a.m. when the peace and quiet is broken by a low rumbling noise. The sound grows louder, and across the fields and farmland, a bright light appears, glowing brighter with each passing second. A shape begins to emerge from the darkness. It's a royal mail train, lit up like a Christmas tree speeding through the shadows towards London. They left Glasgow just before 7 p.m. the previous evening, and the staff of 70-plus mail workers have been working through the night. They'll be in the country's capital in little over 60 minutes, where they can eat, sleep, and prepare for the return journey. For now, though, there's no rest. Along the way, from north to south, they've collected countless sacks of post, hooking, hanging mail sacks from the trackside. But it's not just the Daily Post that's on board. What makes this particular train special is the carriage directly behind the engine, the High Value Packages Coach, or HVP for short. Usually, the amount of cash and valuables on board is worth around $360,000. However, because of a public holiday, the amount has swelled into the millions. Up front, the driver, 57-year-old Jack Mills, squints into the darkness ahead. He watches the tracks appear as if by magic from the gloom. Beside him is his second-in-command, 25-year-old Dave Whitby. The two have traveled this route many times before, and so when something out of the ordinary catches Whitby's eye, it takes him a second to process it. Up ahead, he sees the glow of a red light, small at first, like a lit cigarette but growing larger as they approach. He frowns in confusion. It appears to be a red signal, but here, at this hour? Usually they'd receive word via the radio of any trouble on the line, but there's been nothing. Mills applies the brakes, stopping the train at a spot known as Sears Crossing. Whitby climbs down from the cab and goes to investigate the signal lights by the side of the track. As he gets closer, he sees something that makes no sense to him. Behind the red glow, in fact, all around it, there's a faint green tinge. When he gets up close, Whitby realizes to his horror that the lights have been tampered with. The signal is still green. It's just been covered with a thick glove, making it appear red. He checks the back of the signal unit. He's dumbfounded. He sees not only exposed wires, but extra ones that have been added. He traces them down to a six-volt battery. Someone has tricked them into stopping. Whitby's first instinct is to call it in. He runs up to a trackside phone unit, but when he lifts the receiver to his ear, there's no tone. When he checks the phone cables, his heart beats that little bit faster. They've been cut too. Whitby turns and sprints back towards the train, but before he can get anywhere near, he feels something jerk him backwards, hands grabbing him, yanking him back and spinning him around. 
All of a sudden, he's hurtling through the air, thrown down the steep embankment by the trackside. Back in the train cab, Jack Mills is all too aware of what the problem is. A group of masked men appear, ghost-like, out of the darkness and storm into his cabin. One of them barks instructions, ordering Mills to drive the train a mile down the tracks to a place called Bordego Bridge. Whether it's bravery or shock isn't clear, but Jack Mills refuses. One of the men, raging, suddenly steps forward. With a snap of his arm, he brings the metal pipe he's holding crashing down onto the driver's head. It lands with a sickening thud. Mills crumples to the floor in a heap. There's a silent pause as the other intruders look at the man who struck Mills. This was not part of the plan. They have explicit instructions that nobody is to be hurt. More to the point, they needed the driver conscious. It's a rash move that almost ends the robbery before it's begun. Their getaway vehicles are another mile down the track. After some heated debate and much confusion, the gang managed to revive the groaning Mills. He's hoisted to his feet and dumped into his seat, barely conscious he complies. Just about managing to work the controls, the train trundles forward. Less than an hour later, the robbers jump in their vehicles and make their getaway. With the pre-dawn sky beginning to brighten, their truck races down quiet country lanes. The mood is jubilant. Some even sing songs as they speed back to their hideout. But the gang's leader, a man called Bruce Reynolds, is perturbed. He can't stop thinking about Jack Mills. The train driver wasn't looking too good when they left him. If the police somehow track them down, a violent assault like this can add extra charges and extra years in jail. As it happens, he's right to worry. This moment of madness would prove to be the gang's undoing leading to national infamy. It would also spur a decades-long international manhunt to bring the culprits to justice and, in particular, identify the man who attacked Jack Mills. Who was responsible for this act of violence? Would the culprits face justice? And what would become of the stolen cash? These mysteries would only finally be revealed in a deathbed confession decades after the robbery. But some suspect even the confession is a ploy and that the worst of the offenders is still at large. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of James Hussey, of the words he spoke as he lay dying. It's about one of the most iconic crimes in modern British history. The men who captured the headlines for years to come with their audacious heist. It's about a plan to walk away rich with no casualties that goes horribly wrong and the global manhunt to bring every last one of the gang to justice. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In 1963, Britain is still dusting off the effects of World War II. It's a time packed full of cultural change as England slides into the swinging 60s to the soundtrack of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. In London, fashionable Carnaby Street and the neon lights of the West End mark it out as the capital of cool. But lurking beneath the glitz and the glamour are less desirable layers of life in the city. London is also the playground for a number of criminal gangs including the infamous Cray Twins. Prostitution rings and drug dealers run riot, and armed robberies are all too common. Not all criminals live by a code of violence, though. One such man is 31-year-old Bruce Reynolds. He has carved out a niche for himself in the criminal underworld. He describes his circle as the gentleman of crime, the kind of men who wear Savile Row suits and drive Jaguars and Bentleys. Reynolds and his associates have already pulled off some impressive scores, including a payroll robbery the previous year at Heathrow Airport that netted 62,000 pounds, over 60 times the average annual income at the time. It's two of his fellow robbers from this heist who tip him off about a new job or a tickle, as they like to call it. Gordon Goody and Buster Edwards tell Reynolds they have been approached by a lawyer called Brian Field. He has previously defended Goody and claims to have the inside track on a job so big that they might never have to work again. His information comes from a man known only as the Ulsterman. He allegedly works for the post office and can provide a level of detail that most criminals can only dream of in advance of a job. The target? a vehicle that will lend its name to one of the most infamous heists in British history. One that will become immortalized by the press as the Great Train Robbery. Reynolds wastes no time putting together the crew who will attempt to empty the train of its cargo. Some of them are already part of his gang, like Goody and Edwards. Others are prominent figures in the criminal world, like Charlie Wilson. These men make up the heart of the team, but a job like this requires a range of skills, 
they're soon joined by a variety of professionals, from local greengrocers to racing car drivers. The postal service train they plan to hit runs nightly between Glasgow and London. It carries large amounts of cash from one end of the country to the other. The gang plans to raid over a number of months, carrying out a series of reconnaissance trips. They identify what they believe is the perfect location to carry out the robbery. A spot 50 miles outside of London, where the road runs beneath the tracks, known as Bredego Bridge. They'll be able to park under it and simply unload the sacks of money into waiting cars and trucks below. They have the where, but as for the how, there's a problem. Reynolds is an accomplished thief, but doesn't have a great track record when it comes to robbing trains. Two prior attempts have ended in failure, and Reynolds knows he needs expert help. He turns to a rival gang known as the South Coast Raiders. He has a friend within their ranks, a man called Tommy Wisby. One of Wisby's fellow raiders has a reputation as something of a technical whiz and knows how to safely stop a train. The price for loaning him out is a spot on the job for Wisby himself and two other members of his gang, including 30-year-old James Hussey. Known as Big Jim, Hussey is a painter and decorator by trade, but works for the South Coast Raiders as muscle to earn extra cash. Little more is known about Hussey up to this point, other than his intimidating size and strength. The crew is almost complete. Reynolds, though, ever the planner, has one final piece to slot in. He wants someone with them who can drive the train, just in case the actual driver causes any problems. He reaches out to a friend, Ronnie Biggs. Biggs is a former thief turned carpenter. He knows a retired train driver who he convinces to join Reynolds' gang. Biggs, keen to get in on the act, also convinces Reynolds to add his own name into the mix. With the addition of these last two, Reynolds is happy that he has the right men for the job. One unintended side effect of his recruitment drive, though, is that the job has been widely talked about in the criminal underworld. There's already a dozen or so felons involved in the plot, and new members seem to be joining every day. Discipline and secrecy will be hard to maintain with numbers like these. Reynolds doesn't realize it just yet, but this will come back to haunt them in the days that follow the robbery. For now though, the stage is set. All the gang needs to do is pick their moment to strike. It's August, 1963. Bruce Reynolds has decided when the robbery will take place. It's rumored that the train that leaves Glasgow on August 7th will have over $3 million on board. That's a lot of money in 1963. Today, it'd be closer to $60 million, more than enough for every man on the job to buy himself a whole fleet of Rolls Royces. One rule Reynolds insists on is no guns. There's always a risk that if things go wrong, carrying them could result in longer sentences. Without the threat of firearms to intimidate staff on board the train, it's essential everything goes like clockwork. Towards the end of the first week in August, 
Reynolds and several of the gang hole up at a place called Leatherslade Farm. It's 28 miles from the spot they plan to hit the train at. The farm has been purchased through Brian Field, the lawyer who brought the job to Reynolds in the first place. The plan is to use it as somewhere to lay low after the heist is done and wait for the heat to die down. For now, they use the isolation it provides to go over every last detail of the plan. They make their final preparations, painting the vehicles they'll use to look like army trucks. The rest of the gang arrive over the course of the next few days, and shortly after midnight on Thursday, August 8th, they load up their equipment and head for Bredego Bridge. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history, because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Months of planning. Countless walkthroughs of how the heist will go down. Reynolds is as confident as he can be that everything has been thought out. He's wrong in more ways than he can imagine. As the train hurdles towards Bredego Bridge, the gang get into position. Reynolds and two others cut the telephone lines nearby. This is part of his contingency planning in case anything goes wrong. The sabotaged communications should buy them time. All they can do now is wait. Shortly after 3 a.m., Reynolds hears the train before he sees it. A low hum at first, rising to a rumble as it gets closer. With so many staff on board working through the night, light pours from the windows washing across the dark fields either side. Reynolds speaks into the walkie-talkie, struggling to keep the excitement from his voice. He repeats the same phrase three times. This is it, he says and every one of them knows there's no turning back now. Roger Caudry activates the phony red light he has rigged up, and the train grinds to a screeching halt. As it comes to a rest, nerves evaporate and everything speeds up like life is on fast forward. While several of the gang deal with the assistant driver, Dave Whitby, when he comes to inspect the lights, the others work fast, uncoupling the engine and the two carriages they know carry the money. Another group of masked men storm into the driver's compartment, 
barking orders at Jack Mills to drive them as far as Perdeco Bridge. Mills refuses. It's not ideal, but they've planned for this. They have their own driver. It should be a minor irritation in the grand scheme of things. Tensions are high though, and people under pressure can make snap decisions they later regret. One of the masked men does exactly that. Instead of simply restraining Mills, he smashes him over the head with an iron bar. To make matters worse, the driver slams against the train's footplate as he falls. Mills drops to the floor like a puppet with its strings cut. Up steps the retired driver that Ronnie Biggs brought along for just this moment. The man climbs into the driver's compartment, then looks at the controls with confusion. In the two years since he'd last worked for British Rail, the company has fitted engines with a new style of handbrake. He can't find it to release the brake and allow the train to move forwards. The robbers shake their heads in a mixture of frustration and disbelief. What has been sold as a perfect plan is in danger of falling apart at the seams. They're left with no choice but to haul Jack Mills, bruises already blooming across his face, back to his feet and force him to drive the train. Mills, dazed from the attack, does what he's told this time. When they reach Bredego Bridge, they order the remaining postal workers to lay on the ground while the men form a human chain. They work in relative silence, faces set in grim determination. Bag after 40 pound bag is lifted from the train and passed from man to man before being deposited in the flatbed truck parked by the foot of the bridge. Reynolds keeps glancing nervously at his watch. It won't be long before staff in London notice the train hasn't arrived and start asking questions. If Reynolds calls time too soon, they risk leaving a fortune behind. Stay too long, and the chances of being caught increase with every passing minute. It's around 3.45 a.m., a full 30 minutes after they started unloading, that he signals for the gang to stop. The men, sweaty and out of breath, gladly oblige. In total, they've stolen 120 bags, weighing almost four and a half thousand pounds. Before he leaves the scene, one of the robbers tells the nervous post office workers that they should wait 30 minutes before trying to contact the authorities. This should give them just enough time to make it back to Leatherslade Farm before the police get involved. It seems like an innocent enough thing to ask of them at the time, but it's a decision that he'll come to regret in the days that follow. They drive through what's left of the night, making a beeline for the safety of their hideout. The surrounding countryside is so quiet that Reynolds can hear some of the men in the back of the truck singing songs of celebration. All the way to the farmhouse, the robbers listen to a radio tuned into the local police frequency for signs that the heist has been reported. It's not until they're pulling into the courtyard at the farm that a voice crackles over the airwaves. Attention, attention. A train has been stopped. And you won't believe it. They've stolen the train. Even though the hunt for them has officially begun, the men can breathe a sigh of relief for now. They've just pulled off one of the most audacious robberies of all time. Only two things left to do now. Count the cash and stay free long enough to spend it.
It's almost 4.30 a.m. by the time the alarm is raised. As officers arrive at Bodego Bridge and begin piecing together what's happened, 28 miles away, the gang have begun to empty the mail sacks and count their money. Bruce Reynolds leaves Goody and Edwards in charge and heads to bed. They have instructions to wake him when they're done. It's two hours later when a smiling Edwards nudges Reynolds awake. The total is a little over $7 million, far more than they'd hoped for. The plan now is to lay low at Leatherslade for the next few weeks. Police will be checking airports, ferry terminals, and train stations, hoping to catch the robbers before they vanish for good. Hiding at the farm will leave the police chasing their tails. Then, once the heat has died down, the men will split up and disappear with their share of the loot. The police response is swift. The local force isn't equipped to deal with an investigation this size. Scotland Yard steps in to take over. The famous Flying Squad unit, led by Chief Superintendent Tommy Butler, takes up the challenge. These officers have a fearsome reputation for closing cases, and they aren't bound by the same jurisdictional constraints of ordinary police. The following morning back on the farm, the train robbers are taking it easy. They laugh and joke as they cook up breakfast. That is, until someone hears the morning news report. The police have decided to search the countryside within a half hour's drive of Bodego Bridge. This is based on a witness report from one of the postal workers, who claims the felons asked them to wait 30 minutes before raising the alarm. But when the press runs the story, the 30 minutes is misreported as 30 miles. Leatherslade Farm is 28 miles from the bridge. It's enough to alarm the gang who don't know it's just a reporting error. They hurriedly abandon the farm that same day. They clean up as best they can before they leave, wiping down surfaces for fingerprints. Most of the robbers have worn gloves the entire time they've been there, but they have to be thorough if they're to stay a step ahead. This is actually an extra precaution, because if things go according to plan, there won't be a farmhouse to examine by the time police track down the location. Arrangements have been made with Brian Field, their solicitor, to burn the farm to the ground. The gang abandons the farmhouse, safe in the knowledge that soon it'll be little more than ash. Like so many parts of his plan though, this, too, is about to go badly wrong. The robbery dominates national headlines that week. Rumors fly around like wildfire. Could it have been an inside job? How did the robbers know about the huge sums of money being transported? There's a $700,000 reward offered for information leading to the capture of the men and recovery of the money. Chief Superintendent Butler and his team get their first break on Monday, August 12th, four days after the robbery. Tips have flooded in from all over the country. But the one that proves crucial comes from a herdsman who lives near Leatherslade. He tells officers that whoever bought it recently has blacked out all of the windows. Not only that, but over the past few days, he's noticed a number of vehicles coming and going, including a large truck. Police arrive at the property the following morning. It's not clear why the place hasn't been burned like the gang planned, 
perhaps due to the sooner-than-planned departure. But straight away, there's no doubt that the robbers have been there. Empty mail sacks lie strewn throughout the house like discarded trash. One of the officers spots half-eaten meals on the kitchen table that send excitement levels rocketing. They can't have missed the men by much. Forensic teams from Scotland Yard descend on the farmhouse. They rake through every inch of the place, from the vehicles left abandoned outside to any object that could possibly carry fingerprints. They hit pay dirt right away. Despite the hastily wiped down surfaces and half-burnt ski masks, they find a treasure trove of prints. Amongst the places officers lift these from are ketchup bottles and a Monopoly set that the men had played with while laying low. It's painstaking work to match prints to criminal records. The job has to be done by hand, but sure enough, they manage to connect a number of men to the scene. Amongst them, gang leader Bruce Reynolds, South Coast Raiders gang member Tommy Wisby, and his associate, James Hussey. The following day, front page headlines are dominated by pictures of the wanted men. The first arrests follow soon after. Roger Cordry, the man who rigged the signals, is arrested in the south coast town of Bournemouth. He tries to pay a large amount of cash for a garage lockup. Unfortunately for him, the lady who owns it is a former police officer and calls it in. Cordry is the first, but by no means the last. It seems from the outset that Scotland Yard is a step ahead. Aside from those matching fingerprints, the police also pull in a number of gang members seemingly at random. It's almost as if they have the inside track on who was involved. Other major players in the London underworld will later remark that none of their crews were taken in for questioning. Only Reynolds and those associated with the job. There's talk of an informant, but nobody can say with any degree of certainty who it might be. By December, all bar three of the robbers known to have been involved are in custody, but only $700,000 has been recovered. One of those still on the run is the ringleader, Bruce Reynolds. The rest are left to face the music in his absence. The trial follows soon after, beginning on January 20th, 1964. It lasts almost three months. On April 15th, the presiding judge hands down sentences that shock not only the robbers, but members of the police and the public. Many had expected up to 20 years, but seven of them, including Tommy Wisby and James Hussey, are slapped with a 30-year jail term. It's the longest sentence that's ever been handed out for robbery in Britain. The rest range between three and 25 years. There's a feeling that the sentences are meant to serve as an example punishing the men as much for the scale of the crime as the act itself. The attack on the driver, Jack Mills, is highlighted as justification for the severity of the jail terms. Pictures of his battered face and black eyes make for compelling viewing in court. Though one thing remains unclear, who actually attacked Mills? None of the gang have owned up to it, and police don't have enough evidence to charge anyone with the assault. Despite the fact that three known robbers are still on the run, it's seen as a huge success for the authorities. Chief Superintendent Butler isn't about to rest on his laurels just yet, though. Over the course of the next four years, Buster Edwards, Jimmy White, 
and last but not least, Bruce Reynolds, are all eventually taken into custody. Reynolds is sentenced to 25 years and joins his gang behind bars. This brings the total to 15 convictions, and you may think it wraps the story up in a nice, neat bow. You'd be wrong. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. As far as the public are concerned, the great train robbery is consigned to the history books. For Jack Mills, the driver, life is never quite the same after being attacked on board the train. After long periods of sickness from work, he retires four years later, eventually dying of cancer in 1970, seven years after the robbery. His family maintained that the traumatic attack haunted him into an early grave. The identity of his assailant remains unknown, at least to the public. Over the years that follow, many of the robbers are released early on parole. Amongst them, James Hussey, who gets out in 1975, aged 42. His share of the stolen money had been entrusted to the friend of another gang member, but in his absence, it's been frittered away. Hussey tries to stay out of trouble. He works on a market stall, then later opens a restaurant with a friend. But sometimes you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Hussey struggles to stay on the straight and narrow. He's convicted of assault in 1981. Then in 1989, he's sent back to prison for another seven years for his part in a drug deal, alongside fellow train robber, Tommy Wisby. Not long after his release in the late 1990s, a documentary about the great train robbery airs in Britain. It features interviews from a number of the robbers, as well as the policemen that pursued them all old men by now. One revelation is the confirmation that police did indeed have someone slipping them names back in 1963, a man they would only refer to as Mickey. Amongst those Mickey named were James Hussey, Tommy Wisby, Charlie Wilson, and the mastermind behind it all, Bruce Reynolds. Also included in the documentary is an even more startling claim Several of the former officers state that in reality, not all the felons were apprehended. Three got away and are still at large. With the vast majority of the stolen money never accounted for, and the possibility of three men evading justice, it's beginning to seem like perhaps this wasn't such a great victory for the authorities after all. In an intriguing twist, these former officers go on to suggest that they know the identity of at least one of these fugitives the man who attacked Jack Mills. It's only the lack of sufficient evidence that has kept him from being charged. This tantalizing tease of a tale makes for great TV, but still doesn't put a name to Jack Mills' assailant. For that, we have to wait another 13 years until one man on his deathbed finally claims responsibility. Big Jim Hussey was always more brawn than brains on the jobs he pulled during his criminal career. 
By 2012, he's a far cry from the intimidating figure he cut back in his heyday. Hussey is dying. He spends his final days in a hospice in South London. And like many who are near the end, he reflects on the kind of life he's led. It's not clear who he talks to, but on November 12th, 2012, Hussey opens up about his role in the robbery. His part in it is no secret, but in his deathbed confession, Hussey claims that he was the man who struck Jack Mills. He says he has kept quiet all these years as he was worried new charges might be brought against him, but it's not something he wants to take to his grave. He dies later that day, but rather than his words giving the family of Jack Mills some closure, they just serve to stir up suspicion amongst the public. Some even suggest that he only confessed in order to divert attention away from a fellow gang member, one of the three mystery men who were never brought to justice, that it was some kind of criminal debt being honorably repaid in his final moments. When Mills's son, John, is approached for a comment, he shakes his head. John says his dad told him who had hit him before he died, and it wasn't James Hussey. I'm not prepared to say who it was, he says, but I know. 10 years on from that confession, the chances of finding out the truth about who actually hit the driver are fading fast. The criminal underworld is a notoriously tight-lipped community and most of those involved are now dead or dying. Without somebody coming forward to corroborate it, there's no way to know for sure whether James Hussey's deathbed confession was true or just a diversion. Today, only one of the 15 who served time for the robbery is still alive, and he's saying nothing. The Great Train robbery is still remembered by some as a daring raid, and by others for the brutality that the unfortunate Jack Mills experienced. If police sources are to be believed though, there are a handful who got away scot-free, including Mills' assailant. Men who never served time and who got to keep every penny that they stole. Are they living the high life somewhere still, funded by the proceeds of the robbery? Do they regret the attack on Jack Mills? Who knows? Maybe there's one final deathbed confession waiting to be made in the years ahead that will close the book on the great train robbery once and for all. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Floyd Allen, a powerful outlaw from Virginia. On a cold morning in March 1912, Floyd Allen is convicted of assaulting police deputies. Upon hearing his prison sentence, he rises up from the stands and swears he will not go to jail. What comes next can only be described as a massacre. There's chaos in the courthouse as bullets tear through the room, leaving many innocent people dead. But who fired the first shot that sparked this deadly shootout? This question haunts Carroll County for years to come. That is, until 1967, when two men come forward with a mysterious deathbed confession. 
over 50 years since the tragedy, will we finally understand how and why the massacre began? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scragg. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.